0: Hello and welcome to this podcast episode of Helix and Gene Medical Wellness. As always, I'm your host, Sam Baluch, joined with my co-host, our Director of Functional Medicine, Lori Graham. Today, we have a very, very special guest with us, Diana Minnick. She is an internationally recognized teacher, author, scientist, speaker, and artist. She has more than 20 years of diverse, well-rounded experience in the fields of nutrition and functional medicine, including clinical practice, research, product formulation, writing, and education. Her doctoral PhD research focused on essential fatty acid absorption and metabolism, and her Master of Science degree, MS, allowed her to explore the health benefits of the colorful plant-based carotenoids. She has authored six books on health and wellness and over 15 scientific publications. Wow. Currently, she is faculty for the institute of functional medicine and the university of western states she has developed an online certification program for health professionals so that they can apply the color-coded seven system of full spectrum health in their practice her lectures are heard by patients and practitioners throughout the world dr minick's passion is teaching a whole self approach to nourishment bridging the gaps between science spirituality and the art of medicine wow that is some introduction Welcome, Dr. Minnick. Welcome to the show. And uh, I really, really want to uh, dive into all of this. This is extremely impressive. But how did all of this come about? How did you, in a lifetime, uh, be able to gather all of this and get it to where you are today in this comprised form?
1: Yeah, I think um, I knew what I wanted to do from a very young age. And it started with a health nut mom that I had. So when I was nine years old, I had a mom who was very cutting edge, and we didn't have a microwave, we couldn't eat sugar, and this was in the age of Wonder Bread. This was in the 1970s, so I had a leg up in terms of, and at first I was very resistant to this, I was like, you know, I don't want to be different than the other kids, I don't want to go to my Girl Scout meetings and have to bring my own food. So from a very early age, I kind of knew what was going on from the side of nutrition Then when I was a teenager, I had my own health issues. I had reproductive issues, I had gut issues, and I tried to figure it out with science. You know, Going into, at that time, we had encyclopedias, we didn't have the internet. So I was poring over encyclopedias, trying to figure myself out, going to the library. I wanted to be a medical doctor. I was pre-med, I was um, studying. I, I had a subscription to the Journal of the American Medical Association at the age of 17. And so I was all set to study medicine, and then I started working for a variety of different doctors, an ophthalmologist, a cardiologist, an internist, and I soon realized, and even being in a hospital, I worked in a hospital too one summer, and I figured out that this is not my path. Uh, This is not going to, I was noticing that these physicians did not have solutions for patients. It was more like just writing a, a prescription. And so I had to reconfigure my journey. And I had this epiphany during my junior year of college of undergraduate school. And I thought, you know what, I think I'm going to have to go and study nutrition because it's the closest to what I believe is preventative so that people don't have to go down this arduous path. So I went on to get my master's in nutrition at the University of Illinois. In fact, just yesterday was my 25th anniversary of defending my master's thesis on oxidative stress and antioxidants and back in the 90s this was kind of edge not anymore though it's like oh we're beyond antioxidants
2: (laughs) Uh, you were really ahead of your time
1: well not me it was my professor it was the group that i landed into and you know as part of your graduate work you're typically following whatever direction of the the professor that you're working with and so i really give a lot of um credit to dr phyllis bowen who was my mentor at the time i went on to get my phd in essential fatty acid absorption and metabolism and when i was done with all of that research i realized that you know science is only as good as you put it into action it can't remain just a publication sitting away on a shelf somewhere So, I started to, uh, I began working at a, a large food industry, a large food manufacturer, thought I could get in and change the system. After three years, I realized that was not my path, and I moved away from that and went into working in the dietary supplement industry. So, I began working with Dr. Jeff Bland in 2003, worked with him for about 10 years. So, I was really entrenched in that whole industry of supplements, of education, of clinical trials. And then I went out on my own. And so I'm in year seven of really uh, focusing on education, research, and clinical work in the way of getting the message out. You know, like there's so much going on right now in this pandemic. And it's like, gosh, if we could only, you know, start to make strides, simple things that we can do to reduce our susceptibility. So, you know, that's really my passion right now is education, getting the word out.
0: So what are some of those simple things that somebody during this time could do, in your opinion, that could put them in a uh, better suited place personally for from a health standpoint to be able to withstand anything that comes their way?
1: I mean, you name it. There are, there's like a pinwheel of options. Mine just happens to be more steeped in nutrition so one of the things we were talking about before we got online was that i'm giving a uh, presentation a 15-minute presentation to congressional staff this thursday on eating the rainbow and giving them a toolkit a rainbow tracker a a handout on why eat colorful foods sometimes i think we just have to start with the basics yeah i think we all realize that i mean eating well doesn't have to be rocket science it doesn't have to be expensive it doesn't have to be inaccessible you know why should we have to go off to spend lots of money at a high price clinic when much of our health is determined by what we're eating and what we're doing every day so my focus has been more nutrition but anybody with passion around any area could start up that mountain in any different direction whether it's physical activity sleeping better um, when you sleep better, you eat better, you think better, and you make better decisions. When you eat better, you sleep better, you make better decisions. So it doesn't matter which path you choose. It's kind of like choose the one you have most receptivity to.
0: No, that's brilliant Actually,
1: You know, that's, that's
2: brilliant because just the way you framed that, because in our work, and most of our work is really done through shifting people's relationship with food, helping them lose weight by cleaning out their diet and, and gaining some connection to food with you know not being afraid of what they put in their mouths to eat healthy. And you're so right that every person comes with a different place where they're comfortable starting. And some people are, you know, they dive into the food and other people when we start constructing some of the other pillars, whether it's sleep, whether it's exercise, whether it's stress management, we realize that all these things are so important. But you're right, whichever way in is going to connect to somebody as people that are really hearing our patients, which is what functional medicine is really based on anyway, is really listening, and and holding our patients as center that that's so true in our everyday experience. So I love that you, that you said that, that way. I really love that.
0: So I wanted to ask you a question, Dr. Minnick. you know, I, I hear in your words and studying a little bit um, about a couple of the books that you wrote, I hear a lot of energy and spirituality and a lot of connection of that world to food. Um, you know, for me, my passion is philosophy, theology, spirituality, and metaphysics other than fitness. So that's when I, where I spend a lot of my space in my reading meditations and studies. And, you know, you hit a couple of things on the head as we look to do with our work is, you know, you said the word simplicity, right? Like, how do you make it simple? And where is this most simple place to start? So, you know, the colors of the rainbow is something that I think everybody can connect to and you know can understand it's something that everybody knows actually exists so there is a different level of energetic connection with the physical person and the rainbow so it's a good way to get them to open their ears and listen and um so can you elaborate a little bit about you know your understanding of that how you put that together what the different foods in each color are and how somebody can start in a simple place and make those better choices
1: you bet Um, First, I want to speak to what Lori mentioned about finding our path up that mountain. I do think we have to take a personalized road to health. One of the, the key features now we see in nutrition, fitness, whatever the field is, is personalization. And I've taken that concept of personalization and brought it into the rainbow. So in 2019, I published a paper in the Journal of Nutrition and Metabolism which was all about the science of eating a rainbow. Is there a pattern uh, recognition amongst all the different colors? So red foods, anti-inflammatory, immune benefit, orange foods, reproductive health, yellow foods, digestion, green foods, cardiovascular, blue, purple, and the brain is kind of what I was seeing as I would look at all of these different publications. So to your point about simplicity, where do we start? Um, so many ways to to look at this, but essentially, what I have seen is that if you look at some of the statistics, and these are, you know, back to two thousand and nine now, most people don't eat enough fruits and vegetables. You and I could arm wrestle on meat; we can arm wrestle on dairy; we can arm wrestle on soy. I mean, you name it. There are so many different hot buttons within nutrition, right? And I could give you and cherry pick as many studies on dairy pro and con you just give me a side and i can find the studies for you whereas what we cannot arm wrestle is that of whole unprocessed fruits and vegetables and plant-based foods that doesn't mean that i'm wedded to a dietary dogma like you've got to be vegan or vegetarian or paleo or keto in fact i'm very much you know i I don't subscribe to any particular dogma The, the only thing i can see is the common denominator the bedrock that holds all of us together is that of plants. Whether you are a meat eater that just eats plants um, by way of your daily eating, or you're somebody who only eats plants, it doesn't matter. It's just like pick it and and bring in more plants because that's what we see the science leaning towards. And of those different plant-based foods, nature has an intelligence. There's a system out there is what I subscribe to. I call it a color code. I call it the color code of plants. And as part of some of my graduate work, I was introduced to some of these colorful compounds like carotenoids, orange and yellow and red. Is there a reason for those colors? Do they do certain things in our bodies? And when I was studying these compounds in 1995-ish from 1992 to 1995, yeah, we were thinking, oh, they're just all the same. They're antioxidants. They help your body with oxidative stress and now in the 21st century if we track that literature what we see is that no there's a lot more there these are very functional intentional compounds that lodge into certain parts of our body and are responsible for function so when we think of functional medicine getting our function back being more mobile being more mentally astute you know there's that piece but then i look at a functional approach to nutrients as well in terms of these colors like one of the things that most people don't realize is that orange like beta carotene is helpful in ovulation you know it's been um identified by researchers even some years ago there are 14 different carotenoids embedded within the ovary what are they doing there why do we have carotenoids colorful plant pigments in the ovary. What are they doing? As it turns out, they're responsible for the genomics of ovulation, uh, or at least the retinol beta carotene piece. So it's interesting to find out, and I'm sure. Yeah, and most people don't realize that we have these plant compounds in certain parts of the body. They're just not global antioxidants. That's one piece, that's a general piece, but they also have specific functions.
2: So when you're connecting them and, you know, understanding the chakras that that was the brilliant piece to me and the nutritional biochemistry of that you know and when you explain the ovaries and the carotenoids i'm thinking like okay my pelvis you know my reproductive organs like i'm i'm thinking those are that's where those chakras are so So, yeah
1: so the question is what are chakras right so (laughs) I was taught. um, So even though I was a scientist and really into research, I realized that you can't get all of your truth from a double-blind placebo-controlled trial. You know, that is a human-made construct and it's not infallible. There are certain things you just cannot detect. So one of the things that I learned when I was studying, so I'm not just a science major, I also minored in English literature. I took a lot of philosophy, English, um just philosophy world religions art history you know i have this right brain left brain thing going on and one of the things that i noticed with yoga is that they would talk about the chakra system and so that was always a curious operating system for me and when i created in my mind a correlate in western medicine i was thinking they're talking about the neuroendocrine system that's right my mom (laughs) who is a health nut may not understand chakras because it's a you know foreign term and it sounds kind of woo-woo but she's going and understand neuroendocrine system right and so that's what I did I, I moved away from talking about chakras because I felt like it was limiting people from the information of the truth of what's there in terms of this circuit this web that is within us and how Ancient traditions ascribe certain colors to these systems for a reason. That's and right. they just happen to nicely line up with what I'm seeing in scientific literature.
0: So it's really interesting you say that. And I want to kind of uh, make a little connection here with you in that I've created my own system of training. It's a mixture of kundalini, ashtanga, qigong, and strength training and preventative injury training. And it's all based on spinal health and understanding the origin and insertion point of the vagus nerve from the pineal gland to the gut and how it moves up and down the spine energetically, lights up specific chakras and opens up specific neural pathways through different sequential movement and breathing to wake up the human in a totally different sense of the same. Love it. And, and what that is, is that you know, when you talk about the simplicity, right, and and how you don't talk about the chakras, I don't either for that same exact reason. And you're the only other person, and I guess it's your science background, because I like you do go back and forth between the science and the spirituality. And what connected it all for me was that science is only as limited as what the human brain can accomplish and put terminology for. Whereas spirituality is something that can be limitless and open. However, it doesn't kind of supersede science yet because the only way we can understand it is by putting it in terms of you know scientific language. So people can actually understand what's happening. So what I did was I took the human body and connected people mentally through these movements to what they all know that they already have, which is a human body, the organs, the nerves and you know the lymphatic system the energetic system, the meridians, everything that goes inside the body. So I took the approach like you of getting them to listen to what they already understand and kind of backing into it instead of telling somebody to sit there for 30 minutes in silence because it's nearly impossible for someone who has no training. So in that connection where I really wanted to ask you a question about your work was you talk about the different colors that light up within you know these food systems, right? Where do you see how they connect, like the combination of these foods and how you can kind of not individually have each color that must be eaten, but in terms of portion ratios and how one will affect the other for different purposes? Um, Has it gotten there yet or is that something that, you know, is in the near foreseeable future? so
1: you're speaking more to the energetics of food yep. so there, there are two layers in which i see patterns of food one is the color code that i've been speaking to which is more the functionality of pigments mm-hmm. the other layer is the energetic properties of food so let's just take the root chakra which is connected to the adrenals to stress response so i connect in protein Protein as a macronutrient supports the adrenal glands. It helps to stabilize blood sugar. It gives us a sense of safety and security. It grounds us. It is our physical body. Everything you see with me right now is protein. So, and then looking at the energetic, and that's the earth element, right? And so then you move into the sacral chakra, which I call the flow system of health, which is all about reproductive health. It's about the water compartments of the body. And then I equate the energetics of food there with not just water, but fats and oils. What keeps us moving and flowing so that we're not just a bunch of jelly on the ground. You know, we've got our structure, like these two things work together. And then the energetics of carbohydrate. Then we have the energetics of plants up in the heart, all the different plants and phytonutrients. Then we have the energetics of the chemosensory system, how we taste, what we taste. How we take things in, more the how of eating rather than the what. Then we have the, um, I, I would call it more the psychoactive aspects of eating, how food changes our mood. This is more of the pituitary, which drives a lot of the other endocrine organs and controls things like behavior. And then the pineal, which is more energetic in the way of light. I wrote an article some time ago on photonic nutrition particles of light. I mean, we're we're basically all eating light every time we eat. It doesn't matter if we're eating an animal or a plant. We have harnessed, uh, well, actually plants have harnessed that light energy, packaged it up through photosynthesis, and either an animal took that in and created energy and we ate it, or we ate a plant directly and we got that energy. So everything is about the sun. Everything is about the sun. And why is chrononutrition so hot right now? Why is circadian rhythm, diurnal rhythm? Why are we looking at rhythms? Because we're so out of rhythm. Yep. And so that's an energetic just on its own is the rhythm of eating, the the connection that we have to the sun, to something greater than ourselves. So what, what I feel like you're speaking to is what I talk about as well in my books, which is not just the color-coded system, but it's the... It's where we've lost sight of, I think, in nutrition. We have gone into calories. Yeah. We have gone yeah. into pathways. We've gone into a linear mindset, and I feel like we have left behind the energy of something. How do you feel when you eat an animal plant uh, an animal food versus a plant food? How do you feel when you have sugar versus starch? You know there's that mental emotional component which I embody as the energetics.
0: That's fantastic, and you know it's uh, it's so true. I'm so uh, that's the personalized part. Yeah, That's feel. personalization. Yeah, it's how no, do you it's, feel? So with with you know you said something about the 1990s and where we were in our studies and the antioxidants that you were doing, and now as to where how far we've come. To me, the the health industry took two turns, right? You have the fitness industry, and you have the wellness industry, and Somewhere out there, you have, you know, the holistic and then you have the medicine and somewhere in between the functional medicine and, you know, it, it all encompasses together. But, you know, from a wellness standpoint that is now bridging that gap, you know, we're utilizing genetic testing, we're utilizing food intolerance testing, we're utilizing all of these different avenues of testing that were not available to us years back. Right. And this is kind of, you know, a testament to science. Um, and to where we are now, and the information that we can gather from our bodies to help to help us depict our story a little bit better and understand who we are. Um, where is your feeling on all of these tests? And you know, is there uh, anything specific that you do from that standpoint to take a look and see what's going on inside of a person and or is it more like, if somebody follows this energetic pathway of the rainbow, it doesn't matter where you are, you're going to fall into that balance either way.
1: Great question. So I'm a strong supporter of assessments. I do think if you don't measure it, you won't change it, you won't track it, you won't connect with it. And so back to what you were saying about science, I often say that science is the little brother of spirituality which is the big sister you know they kind of hold hands they kind of meet each other and connect but one is not by itself complete so when it comes to testing i think it's a double-edged sword so back before we had all of these functional testings we did a lot with the powers of observation i looked at you i looked at your eyes i looked at your tongue i looked at your skin evaluated the hair looked at your nails This is the nutrition physical exam, powers of observation, right? I even see this in traditional Chinese medicine. My husband is an acupuncturist. And if I look at how TCM works, they feel your pulse. They touch you. They check for temperature. They are lining up and sensing points on the body where there can be changes. And then there's an insertion of a needle. So it's very palpable. It's very somatic. It's very body oriented and tactile. We have moved so much away from that to where now we have these, these snapshots in time, these snapshots in time. So it's, it's not that I disregard functional testing because I think it's, an, it's a very important piece, but where practitioners have taken it, I would almost say could be dysfunctional where we say like, okay, we, we have this lab test and let's do this, 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 this supplement. But we have to remember that this is a snapshot in time that uh, depending on if that woman is a um, pre-menopausal woman and she's cycling she's going to have different antioxidants at different times of the month different sex hormone levels at different times of the month which will drive different lipids which will drive different um, functions and different body systems it's like When you have a big elephant and everybody's touching a different part of the elephant and you get a different perception as to what the reality is. I kind of feel like that with lab testing. It's really good for a little window into the whole But unless you do it with pattern recognition, which is more of a scientific way to kind of connect the dots. And then you look on day 19 of every month for the same things and you look seasonally you look Annually. I mean, vitamin D is like the big one, right? We can determine yeah. better dosing through getting vitamin D levels. So there's, an, there's a need for it, but I think it's been out of context where people rely solely on a SNP and then they bombard that patient with all of these methylating agents just because of one methyl transferase that had a heterozygous type of confirmation invariant and then you start to see side effects and you think oh maybe it's just a, a reaction of getting their body back into balance well maybe not maybe there's a little bit more there so i think the best of all worlds is to take subjective assessments tapping into what the patient actually thinks mental emotional aspects how do they feel going with the symptoms powers of observation which we have lost and we're not using to the fullest capacity because we're not actually spending a lot of time with patients for the most part in the true Kind of the mainstream medical system, which is not the true system, it's the where we need to correct, and then there are the functional tests that I do think add value. Genetic variants are also valuable, but we need a big story of the patient, we can't just have a little piece of that patient and then make huge extrapolations. I, hope and
2: yeah, I think that's that I think you say that very eloquently, and I, I also sometimes think of most people might fit under that. Bell curve when you change food and you have variety and you tweak protein quantity and lots of roughage and you get the bowels moving and all these good things start happening. A lot of people feel so significantly better and then every once in a while you have people that are stragglers in a certain sense. And I think that's I I know that's the way we do it is, you know, we will then look at deeper labs in that respect. You know, and then is somebody maybe in their late fifties and do they have a family history of cardiovascular disease? We want to look a little, you know, more deeply at inflammation and you know, we might do specialty labs in that respect, but more often we're really looking at how to make people feel their best and and the the lowest hanging fruit. And that was a functional medicine term. That's just so true. It's just so true. But I, I, lo- I love the way you, I think you're going to be a great, great asset
1: to uh, our government <laughs> on Thursday.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I totally you know, agree. My
1: That's all I can do. But, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> yeah, it's not me. I'm really just representing the lineage that has been available for so many years. It's like maybe now we get everybody's attention because we have a crisis. Right, yeah. exactly.
2: And And so well said, because, you know, and Sam and I would talk about this off the air all the time is, we're all caught up in the drama, but nobody's really out there in the traditional medicine traditional medicine sphere really talking about curing the obesity epidemic, eating real food, getting the sugar out of your diet. I mean, I had a sugar ban in my house. You know, we just had a sugar ban.
0: I think, you know, a couple, one thing I just wanna jump back in and, 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 and touch upon about the testing is, You know, I I totally agree with you that a lot of the testing nowadays is starting to be used very irresponsibly. Um, But one of the things that I love about testing personally is it brings you back to that simplicity and opens up a doorway in, in a me, me, me society. So if I can give you a test that gives you my attention And allows you to open yourself a little bit and be a little vulnerable and want to make a change, then that might just be my doorway in to helping you find your overall picture. So that's where I think testing can be really good from a psychological standpoint in being able to connect to somebody who feels more personalized when they look into something and they're a lot more keen to be open and listen. That being said, going to the COVID conversation and where we are, it's where do you see something like this from? Do you think that, look, I mean, I guess the better way to ask this question is I'm looking at all the information, whatever it is that's out there, right? And and whatever we have so far and whatever we've collected and everything leads back to understanding preventative health care. And a lot of the issues that are taking place and taking people's lives are people who have either specific autoimmune issues, suffer from diabetes, are obese, you know, have respiratory issues, all things, literally all things that with some sense of personal responsibility as a society can be prevented and not to get hit by something like this. And our major consciousness of constant fear is one of where's the vaccine? you know, (laughs) and where's your take on that? Do you think that as a society we are going to learn from this or kind of just fall back into the norm again after two years?
1: I think that healthy people who are currently on track with self-care, it's almost like they're taking this as an opportunity, many of them are, to improve and find tweaks. I think that for people who were in states of unhealth and more disease, they could also be experiencing more of the same if they don't have the proper guidance and accessibility to care, to take them out of that. But you're right, I mean, the um, comorbidities that coexist with COVID-19 have been well-documented. There are hypertension, type two diabetes, uh, we see even a role for uh, obesity and overweight, but not solely. I don't think we should hang everything on the hat of that and say, oh, if you're healthy, you won't get COVID-19. No, right. There have been indications of where people who are, and I happen to know a handful of my friends in the functional medicine area, who are beacons of health, who actually came down with COVID. Did any of them pass away from it though?
0: No. So that's what I'm saying. You can't stop contracting it, no matter how healthy you are. (laughs) Well, you could yeah, stop you know, I mean
1: that's just me I oh, mean maybe yeah. there are people who have I mean I, I I don't know and the severity I do think is is much determined on your susceptibility so I think we have to keep that I mean we only can control what we can control so our locus of control right now is to get on board with our immune system to take as best care of ourselves I mean quite honestly this is such a gift that we can be at home we can right. sleep in. Yeah we can go for a walk in the middle of the day we can get the growth we can cook at home how many people have said that they've wanted to cook but they have no time yeah well people don't because they're mothers and they're doing homeschooling and they're juggling lots of things so i'm empathetic to that but i do think that we can find the silver lining in this for ourselves and i think this is going to continue this is not going away if you look at all of the predictions and the data extrapolations, we're going out for probably another year at least. Yeah, yeah. and that's just COVID nineteen. That is not the mental, emotional stress, mental health aspects of this. Absolutely, which I think race. will
0: be worse.
2: Yes. What do you think? What do you think about the concept of herd immunity versus vaccination?
1: I do think that we come to, you know, it's so interesting that this has become such a supercharged issue uh, within whether it's functional medicine or the different areas that we play in. I think that um, one of the the issues that I'm concerned about is that we become too sanitized. We become too sanitized.
0: I I, I totally agree with you. (laughs)
1: Right. So like, uh, and it's not to say there's not a role for hand washing or mask wearing and, and all of this, but it's almost like now you see people like everywhere they go, they're, they're using sanitizer. They are, you know, living this hygienic life. And that makes me, based on the data, you know, if I look at the microbiome and what we need, we need complexity, we need diversity, we need some of these microorganisms. And are we creating a shift from one condition into another because now we don't have those valuable microorganisms so rather than hang my hat on any kind of you know big stake in the ground like a vaccine or herd immunity i really just reflect on the overall shift in the paradigm of how we're living and how that changes the biomes the biome of our body the biome of the earth um i i am concerned about that i think that like anything else, we have a mixed bag. I think it's kind of good that people aren't driving as much. Air pollution is clearing. Animals—we live in a rural area of Washington State, and it's amazing how many animals are coming out. Like, it's
0: yep. right, right, right. Absolutely. it's great. Yeah, it's I, I, I live in the hills myself, and what I see with birds, without all the planes, and on a daily basis over the wall, it's unbelievable. I love your take, by the way, on this because one of the one of my major concerns is. I'm watching all these people drive around in cars and wear masks all day long, even when they're outside. The bacteria and the respiratory issues that these people will develop over the next year is frightening to someone like me who understands breathing (laughs) and and the importance of natural oxygen, you know, without any kind of blockage in between, you know, on a consistent basis. I'm with you as I'm a little more concerned about the aftermath as I am about the actual COVID. Uh, you know,
1: Great. yeah, I, I think like, just like you said, we have to be strategic and smart about when we're applying certain methods, right? Do we need a mask in the car when we're driving by ourselves? I mean, that's right. just, <laughs> I don't get that. Or I see people on bikes wearing a mask. It's like, oh my
2: gosh, right. I'm not yeah. sure how yeah. they do yeah.
1: that. I, <laughs> I,
2: spoke, I spoke to a mother who said she's really questioning whether she wants to homeschool her kids because she doesn't want her young children wearing masks all day.
0: Well, that's, that's a conversation, you know, I have, a, I have a son who's going into third grade and I have a daughter who's going into kindergarten and a huge conversation. And we live in a very nice area where the moms are extremely involved and, and it's a small school district of, of one square mile village. And it's a big conversation in a lot of different ways about we were even having conversations about do we gather a couple of tutors and homeschool the kids for the next year? just so they friends can be with each other. So they get their socialization. But at the same time, they not only get a different experience as a young kid for a year, but also be able to not have to be so confound with all the stuff that they're going to be putting on these kids, whether it's wearing a mask, you know, m- my kids, there's no way they're going to wear a mask the entire day in school. Like that's just, you're not going to get a five and eight-year-old to do that. And I wouldn't let them do that for those reasons, you know? So I think that's a very, very big debate. And August 1st, we'll find out what the plans for schools are in New York. So we're all uh, fingers crossed waiting to see what goes on there. So I know you have a, a hard stop with us. And I wanted to kind of, before we let you go, ask you one or two more questions. Well, A, where do you see the health and functional medicine industry going in the next five to 10 years? That's my first question for you.
1: So I I think it's going to go more into the hands of the patient to take ownership of their own care. What we're seeing is a lot of apps. We're seeing a lot of digitized tools, a lot of -of point-of-care type products, even diagnostic products where people can do these things online. It doesn't mean that there's no more room for a practitioner. I do think that there's skill and an artistry of a practitioner on that end. But I think many people are getting into this biohacking trend, right? They're wearing devices. They're tracking their steps. I think um, people are going to realize at some stage that it's less about giving control over to somebody on the outside, whether it's your insurance or a practitioner. It's more about owning and getting smart about what you're doing and again these things don't have to cost a lot of money i think people will That's start right. to figure this out out of necessity especially now with covid of oh gosh you know i don't have a lot of money what can i do to stay well you know people are going to start getting really creative so i think in the next 5 to 10 years we're going to move down this track of greater personalization and point of care point of the individual taking ownership of their own health in creative ways
0: I love that, you know, where I I agree with you, where I think, though, the the role for practitioners comes in is almost like as an intermediary interpreter, right? So if you have the understanding of how to translate, sort of say, what the person is looking for within their body for them to a simpler language that they can understand, I think that's where people like us who have put in the last 20, 30 years of work can come into play and actually help. and and benefit from from this from an economic standpoint as well. And so my next question for you is, inspiration-wise, what philosopher inspires you and what is your favorite book?
1: Okay, before I answer that, I just want to piggyback onto the previous question. Um, You know, I have this vision that our smartphone becomes like our health device in many ways. I do have this vision and I've been talking about it for like a decade of, we measure not just our functional parameters through the maybe the light on our phone. So maybe it's, um, we measure blue, blood glucose, which we now see as a personalized response, maybe dependent on our microbiome. We measure heart rate variability. We measure pulse ox. We, we're already seeing that we can measure a lot of these things. And then we, yeah. if you look at um, Dr. Michael Snyder's work, You know, he had a TED Talk on which he measured seven different metrics, and he documented when things were going wrong preclinically. He was actually able to document when he had symptoms of Lyme and when he was becoming pre-diabetic, way before you would have even seen this on a lab report. So I think we're going to get more granular with this. I just mentioned some mainstream tests, but imagine you get a subtle energy value or imagine you walk into a grocery store and you scan the apples to find out which apple number one is most nutrient dense number two which apple contains the phytochemical profile that is best for your body not just in general but like best for you so i I almost live in this sci-fi world i can't wait until we get into better metrics because i do think that there's a a good place for technology
0: I don't think think that's too far away. That sounds crazy to a lot of people, but understanding what I know and what I've read, and and I I don't think we're too far away from that at all. I think your vision's right on point.
1: They have smart toilets. I don't know if you saw the press release on smart toilets. I don't know if they do everything I would like them to do, like measure <laughs> fiber and absorption and microbiome adhesion. But wouldn't that be great? You, poop yeah. in <laughs> you get a sense of what, how you just <laughs> performed on what you ate. I think it's awesome. I would
0: love that. But, you know, we cannot I could, ju- I could just envision my kid. Dad, where are you going? To write a report. <laughs> <laughs> well, and
1: i don't think that we should usurp our powers of observation for technology either i think it's a happy balance we can't lo- i mean what if our power goes out we lose our iphone you know we then we lose sense of like our health we can't lose that we have to still be looking at our stool sample we still have to be looking at our foods and smelling them in the grocery store but i do think that some people are driven by numbers and they might have better compliance if they were to have better metrics around these things so your last question was about my favorite philosopher and book to read you know what this is really ironic i used to be a literature hound i would read anything and everything and i super saturated myself with books for much of my early life we have a very robust library at home like my mm-hmm. husband's books my books were they're overflowing and i feel like since i started writing books i actually stopped reading them mm-hmm. and i realized that. The best guru I have is my own internal guru. And everybody has their own sense of self and authority. And I think sometimes with all of the books and philosophers and opinion leaders out there, it becomes like what I call the SOS, the shiny object syndrome. People always say, they're like, Deanna, where can I go to get this training? Or what about this? book?" They put that book down and then they go to the next book. And I said, listen to yourself. Everybody has multiple books within themselves. Why do we have to go and find a guru somewhere? I think nice. we, we know exactly what we need to know if we tune in. That said, I do think that sometimes we need guidelines, inspiration. Sometimes books can inspire us. But currently, I'm not actually re- I I feel like in this part of my life, I'm about to enter into my 50s and I feel like this is the time to really nur my own true self move away from the flurry of information which is so pervasive and like litter out there and you know you can kind of get caught in that noise so it's not to say that people haven't influenced me because they have and i really do give credit to them you know i think of jeff bland i think of my graduate advisor phyllis bowen maria sapunzakis you know all of these people they may or may not have written books but they have impacted my life through my work with them. And so, I mean, my parents, gosh, if my mom had not been a health nut, she's the ultimate philosopher in my life because even now she still gives me a hard time about something. Like she's an authority. (laughs) So it's like, dang, mom, you just continue to uh, be my my advocate of truth and truth-seeking. So what I would say to everybody is, rather than spend money to pick up another book, and I, look at me, I have six books and I'm telling people don't buy books, but I do think... (laughs) It's important to read and get educated, but there's a yeah. certain point of supersaturation and analysis paralysis where it's like, okay, now it's time to take a break and start listening to the within.
0: No, I totally Very agree wise. with you. And, you know, Very wise. totally, totally agree. I'm, you know, in our household, my wife and I don't watch the news ever, and we don't indulge our brain into any kind of nonsense. Um, haven't read a book myself in about seven years either. <laughs> but... Uh, I will tell you this, where I totally agree with you, is books open your eyes to a new way of thinking and language, but they're not going to give you the answer that you're looking for. So if you can continue to open your eyes by viewing how somebody else looks at the world in certain situations, it'll help enhance your brain and your, your level of understanding. But ultimately, like you said, you have to hit a stage in life where you look at the guru within and understand what that speaks to. The last note that I wanted to talk to you about was uh, you said your husband is a acupuncturist. And uh, it's interesting because one of the things I would love to personally realize and know more about is in my routine, if there is a specific way to measure the meridians that I'm connecting to the different movements and patterns and somebody who understands that world, you know, to a deeper knowledge, you know, maybe can give me some insight, some, uh, some help on understanding how to connect that science of it. So people can have a language that they can understand better for it.
1: Yes. Uh, and there are so many actually really great authorities in that area. Right, I think of Lonnie Jarrett. I think yeah. of Ted Kapchuk. I mean, these people have written books on Ephraim and Harriet, um, talking about. I mean, th- there are such incredible ways to get information on the meridians, and then also there's there are scientists and researchers that are applying. Western concepts to Meridians now, and showing them in in different ways. So it's kind of interesting to see the hybrid model that's evolving as a result of the East-West blend.
0: I love it. So with all that being said, um, I love the fact that you have such a great balance uh, of spirituality, science, nutrition, ecology, philosophy, and history. It all comes together with obviously all your accomplishments. I um, want to thank you very much for joining the show. This was truly a uh, pleasure conversation that we had with you, and you taught me a lot and a whole new way of viewing certain things that will help intensify my understanding of everything a little bit better, so I want to thank you for that. Now, one thing, where can people look for you and find you, our audience, if you know they want to get your book and you know they want to get a little bit more information about you?
1: Thank you. Uh, it's been a great conversation. I, I had no idea what we would talk about exactly, and we went into <laughs> just thinking it would be organic. So. Having a science spirit kind of conversation is the best kind in my my book. (laughs) So where can people get in touch with me? My website, deannaminich.com. It's D-E-A-N-N-A-M-I-N-I-C-H.com. And on the site, I just wanna let everybody know that there are a bunch of downloads. You can get the the rainbow toolkit that I'm gonna be presenting to Congress on Thursday you can get a food and mood tracker. You can get um, a book on how color can be healing. It's like a 50 page booklet. So I have a, I'm all about being practical. I don't want to keep it up there in the ether. It's like, you know, we need to like hit the ground running on these things. So I'm all about tools, making it practical. So see what's on the site that would be of use. And if anybody wants to join, I have a community online on Facebook. It's a closed book group called Nourish Your Whole Self. And we do some free programs and it's all about inspiration and information. So we'd love to have everybody.
0: And is your website where you would share the information, post your Congress talk to let people kind of give them a, you know, share with them the experience a little bit so we can all understand what took place? Because this is a big deal for for our industry that you're doing this.
1: Yeah, I, absolutely. And and by the way, it's through the Institute of Integrative Nutrition. They're the ones that invited me to be a presenter. There is a presenter on mindfulness and a presenter on health coaching. My understanding is that 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 webinar will be recorded and placed on a landing page after it. So, I am gosh, just sign up for my email list. I am going to put that record I've already sent out the notice and let people sign up for the webinar, but I think people will be hearing this recorded podcast after the fact. So on my Facebook page, I'm gonna I'm gonna have it everywhere. I want to get Perfect. this word out so badly. So um and, I would get sure. it to
0: us so we can get it to our email list as well. You
1: bet. You bet. I will do that.
0: Perfect. All right. Excellent. So thank you so much, Dr. Minick, for joining us. Um like I said it was totally a pleasure and look forward to doing this again sometime in the near future.
1: Sounds great. Thank you so thank much you. for having me. Thank Excellent. you so much.
0: Thank bye. you. <laughs> bye. All right, take care. Bye. Take bye care. Bye. You too.